And here we go, everybody. It is another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Tuesday night, downtown Brooklyn. Big show to get to tonight. We've got some Masters, NBA, as we wrap up the regular season, start to move into the playoffs. Seating's just about set. First week of Major League Baseball is in the books. We'll talk about a couple of other items, but we start... With a sport and a topic we seldom discuss here on Jamal About Sports, which is golf, and most notably the Masters, which just concluded this past weekend. And Sergio Garcia, finally, after 73, I believe, or 74 starts in major championships, finally got off the schneid and won the Masters. Sergio Garcia, who, what was it? Almost 20 years ago, when he was a precocious 19-year-old at the PGA, when he hit that ridiculous shot from behind a tree, that low cut, it went up on the green, and Sergio, a skinny 19-year-old kid, sprinting up the fairway to see where the ball landed, and from then on, people thought he would be the, the main challenger to Tiger Woods. That was the general consensus at the time, that they'd probably be going toe-to-toe back and forth to see who the best player in the world would be, and it it didn't pan out. Now listen, Sergio's had a very accomplished career. He's been a tremendous Ryder Cup player. He's won a ton of tournaments, both overseas and on the PGA Tour. He's made, obviously, obscene amounts of money. But he's had a very interesting career. He's 37 years old now. He went from being kind of this precocious, joyful young player to kind of cranky, in his late 20s, there was the whole nonsense at the, the 2002 U.S. Open at Beth Page Black here on Long Island when Sergio had the waggles at that point and was getting mercilessly ripped by the gallery. Not, by the way, one of the finer moments for New Yorkers. Their behavior was despicable. And, you know, he made some idiotic comments or some, at the very least, controversial comments. You know, he complained about Tiger Woods getting preferential treatment. Um, I think that that incident, I forgot what tournament it was, where they literally moved, you know, 20 people went over and moved a boulder out of the way on, a, on an errant tee shot for Tiger. They somehow decided that that was an, uh, a movable impediment. Uh, and I think Sergio didn't take too kindly to that. Can't say I blame him. And I think also that the weather at that U.S. Open was bad. And I think he said if Tiger wasn't the leader, they would have stopped play. He didn't like playing in the rain and... So that's all the, the gallery needed to hear. And they let him have it mercilessly. He had that incident where he, he, he got mad. He had a bad holy. I think he spit into the cup at the end. So he did say he brought some of this on himself, to be fair. And then he had the very public breakup, which I guess he made public. He dated Greg Norman's daughter for, for several years. And then apparently she was the one who ended the relationship. And, and he admittedly was crushed by that. And admitted that it affected his golf game. And now, as you know, they, they kind of covered the story ad nauseum over the weekend, but he's in a much better place mentally. He's engaged. He's getting married this summer. He's older, wiser. Said he, he's the most calm he's ever been. You know, I, I think it was a few years ago, he actually, after another <clears throat> disappointing run at the Masters, which is an extremely important tournament for him, by the way, because... Two of his idols, Seve, the great Seve Ballesteros, who won the Masters, 
uh, Spaniard was one of his idols and influences and mentors growing up. And then the other great Spanish golfer, Jose Maria Olazabal, who had won the Masters twice. Now there are other great players. Miguel Angel Jimenez is one of them. But those two guys really were major influences in, in Tiger's life. And Seve sadly died of brain cancer several years ago. But so this was an important tournament for Sergio. He's always wanted to win this one. You know, he had the near miss in 07 when he went to a playoff against Patty Harrington. He had a putt on 18, very makeable one to win it in regulation, missed the putt. But he said this is the calmest he's ever been in the final round of a major. And look, he played great. I mean, he went in as the leader, tied with Justin Rose. He shot three under in regulation on a, on a final ma- round in, in the Masters. You know, I think I think going into that, his he's co- his collective scores at the Masters something like seventy five over par in rounds three and four. And so you got to feel good for the guy, and you saw the raw emotion, the jubilation, sort of coupled with an enormous sense of relief after he made that putt on the first playoff hole, the eighteenth green again. For birdie, he only needed a two-putt to win because Justin Rose hit an errant tee shot and bogeyed that hole. But, you know, again, you thought, oh, my God, is this going to be the same thing? I mean, look, Sergio was leading off to a great start. Birdied one, had a lead, bogey 10 and 11, while Rose birdied those, so then there was a big swing there. But then you still figure, okay, if you're rooting for Sergio like I was, all right, he's got two par fives coming up. He's got 13 and 15. You think those are, you know, at the very least, birdie chances for him. He drives the ball beautifully, hits it a ton. Maybe even an eagle opportunity on at least one of them. And then on 13, he duck hooks his drive, goes under a bush, looks like he might be dead. They find the ball, so he gets to take it unplayable rather than have go and retee but with an out-of-bounds shot. And he grinds and makes five. That was huge. Then he comes back and he birdies 14, which is not an easy hole to birdie. Then he eagles 15 with after an unbelievable second shot. I think it was a six iron or an eight iron. To about It looked like it was going to go in the hole for an albatross. Kicked just left to about 12 feet. Made a very slippery left to right kind of downhill putt for the eagle. And that shifted everything. From a, a momentum standpoint... But then, to Rose's credit, Justin Rose, who has a U.S. Open under his belt, a very good player, another excellent Ryder Cup player as well, he bur- they both had great tee, sh- great tee shots into the 16th green, the par 3. Rose makes the birdie. Sergio misses. And then it goes to 17. Now, Rose gives one back. He bogeys. Sergio grinds and makes par, which set up 18. Sergio had the chance to win. Goes to one more hole. Sergio won. So you had to feel really good for the guy. I mean, listen, I've always liked Sergio. I love the fact that he's been kind of open and honest about his emotions and where, he has, where he's at in his life. You know, he's very real to me. I can really relate to him. I find him extremely relatable. You know, he does, he's not the automaton that Tiger is. You know, Tiger shows emotion. Of course, you know, he's either angry or he's, you know, doing his sack dance when he makes 20-foot putts, although that hasn't happened in about 10 years, but... You know, with his angry glare and his glower. Uh, and listen, I understand Sergio gets goes over the top in the Ryder Cup, but now apparently that's what everybody does. You know, we saw it last year with Rory and uh, Patrick Reed. 
you know, with their back and forth nonsense. I find all that stuff to be uh, extremely distasteful, frankly. But that's what everybody likes now. And, I, you know, look, I know I'm an old curmudgeon. But I digress. So I, I was thrilled for Sergio. And I think pretty much most people who, who follow golf are rooting for him. So kudos to him. And listen, that, that last, you know, the last however many holes it was, from about 13 on, plus the playoff hole, was just about the best representation of sports. And with all the junk that goes on now in the sports world, college professional, you know, to see the sportsmanship. I mean, look, those guys are genuinely friends, Justin Rose and Sergio Garcia. They're Ryder Cup teammates. This is not some media creation friendship. You saw Sergio's fiance and Justin Rose's wife genuinely embrace, you know, and kiss each other. I mean, they're, they're legit friends. And the sportsmanship that they displayed was tremendous. Even the day before when Sergio was paired with, uh, Charlie Hoffman, you saw them kind of sharing a laugh a couple of times. I love to see that stuff. You know, you you can want to beat the other guy's brains in, so to speak, but also display sportsmanship and some camaraderie and some collegiality. There's nothing wrong with that. So I thought that was the best representation of sports. That's why we love sports. That's the that's the, the that's exactly all that's good about sports competition but sportsmanship at the same time fierce competition but also extreme sportsmanship it was tremendous loved it that's why you love Sunday Master Sunday so kudos to Sergio thrilled for him it'll be interesting to see now what this means for his career moving forward I mean look by golf standards he's not young but he's still 37 years old he's in great shape he hasn't dealt really with a ton of injuries throughout his career. He'd been playing well this year. He won over in Dubai, beat Henrik Stenson, another very good golfer, who played maybe the best round ever that Sunday last year at the British Open to hold off Phil Mickelson. I mean, Henrik Stenson's an extremely good golfer. So now Sergio gets to shed the label of the best golfer to never win a major. And we'll see, you know, with this newfound mental attitude and mental outlook, maybe this frees him up now. To just go out and play and stop thinking about stuff so much and worrying about, you know, the weight of unfulfilled expectations. I wouldn't count him out. I absolutely see him winning another major this year. I mean, he's always had the game. That's the thing. I mean, you know, the putter is really is is what lets him down. I mean, he drives the ball as well as anybody. He's a great iron player. His putting is inconsistent. Except when it comes to Ryder Cup, then he makes everything. All right, moving on. So the NBA season is just about to wrap up. First, we'll start with the MVP. And I think at this point now, it's indubitably Russell Westbrook. I mean, his last, his basic, to me, the exclamation point, I'm going to be talking about him all year on Jamal about sports, but the exclamation point was a game against the Nuggets the other day where he went for 50 he broke Oscar Robertson's record for most tri- triple doubles in a season. Uh, I think the game before that, he'd already secured averaging a triple double for the year. Only last person to do that again, Oscar Robertson. And he went for 50 points, 16 rebounds, 10 assists against the Nuggets. And the game meant something for the Nuggets. They were still alive for the eighth seed in the playoffs at that point. 
Oh, and for good measure, he drills a 35-footer for three down two to, with no time left to win the game for Oklahoma City. So it's not even a question to me now that he's the MVP. Now, look, it was a close race. James Harden had a tremendous year. Rockets won more games. I get it. I mean, Oklahoma City lost a top three player in the league, Kevin Durant. They lost their second best player, Ennis Cantor, for a significant, I think he missed about 15 games when he broke his hand. And yes, Ennis Cantor is their second best player. I know he comes off the bench. He's their second best player behind Westbrook. Oladipo is way too inconsistent. And you look at the rest of that roster, again, it's okay. They made the trade. They got Taj Gibson, Doug McDermott. All right. You know, Anthony Roberson's a nice defensive player. Didn't give you much on offense, if anything. Can hit an occasional corner three. He's like a poor man's Bruce Bowen from the Spurs. But, you know, for the, the fact that Oklahoma City won 46 games, and they might win 47. Now, he's sitting out probably the last two games. Big deal, by the way. Now, there's other people maybe trying to make a, an, uh, an issue out of the fact that he's not going to play the last two games. Are you out of your minds this guy brings it every single night. He's not like these other guys that rest. They take their rest games like LeBron and Curry and, you know, Greg Popovich rests half his team, you know, seven, seven to ten times a year. You know, to the point now where it's become a major issue in the NBA where you have these nationally televised games and, you know, you're seeing second team guys play the whole game. It's a bad look. It's funny, I don't remember Patrick Ewing taking games off. I remember Charles Oakley taking games off. Michael Jordan didn't take any games off. It's ridiculous. But anyway, so to me, Russell Westbrook, hands down the MVP. 46 wins, again, in the Western Conference. This isn't the, the East, where you got a bunch of junk from about seeds four through eight. All right, we'll get to the standings in a second. The Western Conference, without doubt, without a doubt, is a better conference than the Eastern Conference, top to bottom. And they won 46, maybe they're going to win 47 or 48 games. Guy put his team on his back. We talked about their, their record. I mean, I think they're now, let's see, he has 42 triple-doubles. I think they're 36-6 and six or something like that in those games, or 34-8. and eight. I mean, it's a ridiculous record. We'll look it up at the break, but you get the idea. These are not just window dressing, stat padding games, these triple doubles that don't mean anything. He puts up a triple double, his team wins, and they're going to be the sixth seed, and it's going to be a great, interesting first round series because they're going to play the Rockets. I'm actually looking forward to that. It's funny because the Knicks have been such a disaster. I sort of soured on the NBA the last few years, but Russell Westbrook is sort of kind of re-fanned the flame, so to speak, as far as me being an NBA fan. Because I just love watching that guy play. The passion, the energy, the fierce competitor that he is. You don't like why? And listen, I know, I get it. He's not a perfect player. He'll take some terrible shots from time to time. He plays hero ball sometimes too much. But again, look around that team. And I know crybaby Kevin Durant couldn't handle it. Hey, but how about this Kevin Durant? How about last year when he had a chance to stomp out the Warriors in game six and you put up a dud in the fourth quarter and you kept jacking up one terrible jump shot after the next and you couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. Was that Russell Westbrook's fault? I don't think so. And listen, I generally, I generally like Kevin Durant. He's a nice kid. 
But, you know, this idea that it was all Russ's fault and, you know, I couldn't play with him, it's ridiculous. And can you imagine this? Oklahoma City at one point had Harden, Westbrook, and Durant all on the same team. Pretty spectacular. Now, they traded Harden away, didn't get enough back. And obviously Durant left as a free agent. And then they traded Serge Ibaka and got back Oladipo, Arvita uh, Sabonis' kid, who was a first-round pick this year, who I think will be a good player. But in any event, Westbrook, to me, MVP, can't wait to watch that first round. And there's some, there's, there, there's some good matchups here in the playoffs. I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it for the first time in a long time. It's almost like the Knicks have been such a disaster that I forgot that, you know, there's actually good basketball being played in the NBA these days. So if I were doing an MVP vote, if I had a vote, I'd Westbrook won. Harden would be number two for me. I mean, he almost averaged a triple-double. Led the league in assists. We've talked about how he's completely remade his game. You know, what would what the Rockets win? 57 games or something this year? So... He certainly would be my number two. I'd say Kawhi Leonard for the Spurs, who, by the way, won 61 games this year. You look at that roster, and you're like, what? The Spurs won 61 games? I mean, I know Tony Parker's still there. This is not the Tony Parker of five years ago. This is not the Evan Longoria Tony Parker. <laughs> Evan Longoria. Eva Longoria Tony Parker. Uh, you know, Tim Duncan's not there anymore. But they just keep rolling along, and Kawhi Leonard's a big reason why. I think he averaged like 25 points, one of the best defenders, if not the best defender in his position in the NBA, small forward. So I'd say he'd be number three. Isaiah Thomas for the Celtics would be number four. And then, you know, you could take your pick at number five. Throw LeBron in there if you want. Maybe John Wall from the Wizards. They're pushing hard to win 50 games the first time in a long time. They won their division, which not that big a deal, but it's an accomplishment considering where they were last year. Scott Brooks. Former Oklahoma City coach, first-year coach of the Wizards, done a very nice job with that team. And the interesting thing is you go over to the Eastern Conference and the Cavaliers basically have conceded the number one seed. They basically said, all right, we don't really care. We just want to get into the playoffs. Let's regroup. They have not played well lately. As a matter of fact, let's go to the standings and check it out. I think they're like... Three and seven in their last ten games. Now, you know, look, some of that is hard to, you know, you take some of that with a grain of salt because of the fact that, you know, they do they like to do the rest thing. Like, they didn't play anybody last night against the Heat. Uh, and still, me, man, uh, still almost won, by the way, because Deron Williams, who they recently picked up, had a throwback game from his Utah days and put up 35 points. Um, but the Heat are fighting for their playoff lives, trying to get in at the, as the eighth seed. Um, but here, let's take a look at the standings in the NBA as of today. So the Celtics, 52-29. and 29. They're 7-3 and three in their last 10. The Cavaliers are 51-30. and 30. They're 4-6 and six in the last 10. They've lost three straight. And they blew a 26-point fourth quarter lead the other night against the Hawks, who are not exactly world beaters. I mean, they're going to make the playoffs as the fifth seed with 42 wins. So you've got the Celtics 1, Cavs 2, Raptors 3, 50 and 31. Raptors, by the way, hottest team in the East. 8 and 2 in their last 10, 
won three in a row. They've got Kyle Lowry back. Getting Serge Ibaka was a good trade for them from Orlando. P.J. Tucker was a nice under-the-radar move. He's a glue guy. Rebound, takes charges. DeMar DeRozan. You know, actually, DeMar DeRozan probably be my, my fifth pick for MVP. I forgot about him. He's had a tremendous year, too. I think he's third in the league in scoring. And there are the Wizards sitting there at four. 49-32. The Hawks, five. Bucks, six. And right now, the Pacers are seven at 41-40. and 40, The Bulls are eighth at 40-41. and 41. Heat are also in 40-41. And the Bulls are on the tiebreaker. It's funny. The Bulls, when Dwayne Wade got hurt, he's back now. But when he got hurt, they started playing better. And Jimmy Butler's had a tremendous year for them, too. He's a very good player. Pacers, Paul George has had a really good year. You know, the Bucks are an interesting team. I mean, you know, Giannis, Anton Tacupo, the Greek freak, has played great for them this year. He kind of plays almost every position on the floor at 6'11", long, plays point guard sometimes. You know, they lost their second-best player, Jabari Parker, but... You know, Jason Kidd might actually be a pretty good coach. I mean, that, that, that team is not stocked with a ton of talent. And then listen, I get it. They're 42 and 39. Not great. But they're going to make the playoffs. I think if you looked at if you looked at the Knicks roster and you looked at the Bucks roster, I think you'd probably say, you know, just at first glance, I'd take the Knicks with Carmelo, Derrick Rose, and Porzingis. And yet the Knicks are going to have won 30 games, and hopefully that's all they'll win so that they can uh, improve their odds for a better draft pick. They've only got one more game, but they're playing the Sixers who probably want to lose that game too. So Knicks might win. But, you know, the Knicks have 30 wins. The Bucks have 42. The Bucks are really a 12-win team, better, 12 wins better than the Knicks roster-wise. No, but the Knicks are the worst-run team in sports. I mean, the worst-run team in sports. It's not even close. I mean, the owner is the worst owner in sports. Maybe one of the dumber human beings you've ever seen or heard in your life. Have you ever heard James Dolan interviewed? It's, it's sad how idiotic he is. And then, of course, Phil Jackson is a complete disaster. So It's going to be the third year in a row the Knicks have lost at least 50 games under Phil Jackson. That's pretty good. It's good. First three years, 50 losses at least. Don't tell Phil that, though. He's still the smartest person in the room. He'll tell you. He's got 11 rings. Can't stand the Knicks right now. So that's your Eastern Conference. Then your Western Conference, you got Golden State at 66 and 15. They're going to be the one seed. San Antonio's locked in at the two at 61 and 20. Houston's locked in at 54 and 27 for the three seed. Clippers and Jazz right now are tied at 50 and 31. Clippers, by the way, quietly winning six games in a row and eight and two in their last ten. They're starting to make some noise. You know, the Clippers are interesting. They could be dangerous because they've got, you know, Blake Griffin and Chris Paul, two of the better players in the NBA. DeAndre Jordan's a great rebounder, shot blocker. Problem with him is he can't make foul shots. And in a close game in the fourth quarter, it's hard to have him on the floor, you know, in the last five minutes because teams foul him intentionally. The guy can't make a foul shot. And he's probably their third best player. So the problem becomes for the Clippers is where is that third guy going to come? I mean, assuming 
Griffin and Paul show up and do what they do, which is, you know, Griffin's a 20 and 10 guy and Chris Paul's, you know, a 20 point, 10 assist guy. Where's you, where are you going to get that third score from? You know, DeAndre Jordan, even when he's really good, he's not a big score. I mean, he scores a lot on dunks and stuff, but he's not an offensive threat. They don't run plays for him. He gets all his scores on putbacks and dunks on, out on the fast break. So is it J.J. Redick? Is it Jamal Crawford, the ageless wonder? You know, so that's... And then, you know, if there's a game where Griffin or Paul has an off night, they kind of have no shot. So that'll be interesting to see. The Jazz, I got to hand it to, you know, Quinn Snyder's done a good job coaching that team. I mean, Rudy Gobert, by the way, the stifled tower, he's played great. And Gordon Hayward's had a very fine year for them. And then there are my Thunder there in the sixth seed. They're locked in. The Grizzlies are locked in at the seventh seed. You know, they, they've, they've really, I mean, they, they were a nice story early uh, with uh, Fizbo the Clown as their coach. <laughs> Dave Fizdale, uh, whoever he might be. But they're 3-7 and seven in their last 10. They're five games over 500. They, they, they've not played well probably for about the last 20 games. And then the Blazers just secured the eighth seed at 41-40. Kudos to them. There was a Jake Lehman sighting last night, University of Maryland. Wasn't shy either. Jacked up 14 shots in 25 minutes. Only made two, unfortunately. But he had four rebounds. A little shout-out to my alma mater. So I'm looking forward to the NBA playoffs. I actually am. First time in a long time. And it'll be interesting to see if the Cavaliers' decision to sort of... <laughs> pun intended, cavalierly throw away the first seed in the East if that comes back to if that comes back to bite them. You know, the problem is, as you look at the Eastern Conference, who there, I mean, the Cavaliers look like they're ripe for the picking, right? They really haven't played well for about 15 games now. They've kind of looked out of sorts. I mean, you know, Kevin Love is back now. You know, they made some of the moves. They got Deron Williams. Deron Williams... He played really well last night when he was the guy, but he's not played well, actually. He's a bench player in limited minutes. He looks like he needs to be out on the floor a lot, and that's not going to happen as long as Kyrie Irving is healthy and playing. And they're not going to play those guys together. You know, they got Kyle Korver. He's dangerous. I mean, when he you leave him open, he's going to make threes. But they haven't really integrated all these guys in yet. You know, they got Derek Williams they picked up for a little while. Now he barely plays. He can be a dangerous scorer off the bench at times, but he's highly inconsistent. He's plagued him his whole career. That's why he's never lived up to his billing as a number two pick in a draft a few years back. But you look at the Eastern Conference, you know, you'd say, all right, well, the Celtics are a threat. I mean, the Cavaliers, when they decided to play a few games ago, they, 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 they walloped the Celtics. Now, that's one game. You know, I think people are way, making way too much a big deal that now the Celtics apparently have no shot at beating the Cavs because the Cavs blew them out, you know, four games ago. Well, it's one game. You know, these are seven-game series, remember. Used to be five. Then when Kobe and Phil were with the Lakers and the Lakers lost the first-round series, guess what? Phil, uh, uh, David Stern said, oh, no, no, no. Okay, now we've got to make the first series uh, seven games. So I think the Celtics certainly have a shot. You know, they're a classic center. The sum is greater than the whole of the parts team, but they do have a superstar in Isaiah Thomas. And a guy's a great fourth quarter player. And a guy who gets to the foul line and can get his own shot. And he's a bad shot maker. 
He takes shots that look terrible, but he makes them a lot. Now, you could argue it's tough when your best player is 5'9". Okay. But, you know, Jay Crowder is a very good player for them. Underrated. Avery Bradley is a very good player. He's an excellent defender at the two position. And he's turned himself, a guy who couldn't hit the broad side of a barn when he first came in the NBA, he's turned himself into a good shooter. And I understand Marcus Smart can't shoot at all, but he's a glue guy who does everything. So, you know, I think the Celtics, you know, and Al Horford's a nice player. Look, they didn't win 52 games by accident. And I'd like to say the Wizards might have a shot because they've got the great backcourt with Wall and Bradley Beal. You know, they need their frontcourt guys to show up. And somebody off the bench, whether it's Bobo, Brandon Jennings, Ian Mahimi, Kelly Oubre Jr., it's tough to expect much from him, though. He's a very young player. Young bench players, typically what you'll see in the playoffs is young bench players, even the, even the more established bench players, they typically play well at home and play lousy on the road, generally speaking. Not all the time, but that happens an awful, an awful lot. And that's where, obviously, home court advantage comes into play. Maybe the Raptors have a shot at the Cavs. We'll see. You know, the rest of that, uh, the Eastern Conference, complete waste of time. I have no interest in the Hawks, Bucks, Pacers, and then whoever's going to be the eighth seed, whether it's the Bulls or the Heat. Now, watch. Having said that, one of those teams will upset somebody. <laughs> and then out in the West, I mean, you'd think Golden State should have no problems at all with the Trailblazers. Trailblazers would do well to win one game there. I mean, look, they've got a great backcourt, too, with Damon Leonard and C.J. McCollum. Damon Lillard, rather. Um, but, you know, if one of those guys has an off night, they have no shot at winning. Talked about the Grizzlies. Like I said, the matchup I'm most looking forward to is the Thunder versus the, the Rockets. And then we'll see which of those two teams, if one of those two teams can, can threaten Golden State. Same thing with the Spurs. I mean, right now, logic dictates that the Spurs and or the Rockets would be the greatest threat to the Warriors. All right, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with some Major League Baseball right after this. Here on another edition of Jamal About Sports, taking us out of break. Haircut 100 with favorite shirts. All right, we got one week, first week of the season, Major League Baseball in the books. Mets sitting at four and three. Pretty much what you'd expect so far from the Mets. Look, top of the rotation, Syndergaard, a.k.a. Thor, outstanding. Um, six shutout innings his first game, left with a blister, pitched great the other night, seven innings, one earned run, avoid a three-game sweep at home at the hand of the Marlins. Uh, DeGrom, great in his first start. Not great last night, didn't have it, walked the leadoff hitter, which is something he rarely, if ever, does. Um, gave up a couple of runs in the first inning. However... 
He also was a victim of some bad luck. There was a little jam job blooper that barely got over Reyes' head at third base, which, frankly, you know, five years ago, Jose Reyes makes that play. And then the next batter hit a fly ball to center field or kind of a line drive that literally any decent center fielder in Major League Baseball catches the ball. And Howie Kendrick, who was on second base at the time for the Phillies, was completely fooled and was, you know, basically would have been easily doubled up. So no runs would have scored in the inning. But of course, the Mets, in their infinite wisdom, have Curtis Granderson playing center field, who is by no means a center fielder at this point in his career. I mean, zero, none. And of course, he misread the ball, got a bad jump. And now, you know, he's 36 years old and slow. So, you know, the ball dunked just in front of him. Uh, And so the Phillies end up scoring, uh, sorry, yeah, the Phillies ended up scoring a couple of runs. Got a big home run by Jay Bruce early in the game. Got a big home run by him late in the game to break a 2-2 tie off a lefty. Eighth inning uh, after uh, a reliever for the Phillies who, uh, as Dribble Cabrera, hit a game-winning home run off late in the year last year in an extra inning game, which was a crazy back-and-forth game. And Cabrera did the bat flip, looked at his own dugout, and I guess this guy didn't like it. And uh, basically threw up and behind his head last night. Cabrera didn't take too kindly. Kind of woke up the Mets, frankly, who at times have looked incredibly sluggish so far to start the year. But look, that's the Mets. They're going to be very frustrating this year. They're an all-or-nothing team. They have zero speed, zero athleticism, except for maybe Jose Reyes. They don't walk a lot. They hit for power. But they don't have a ton of high-on-base percentage guys in that lineup. And again, they ha- they're going to they struggle to manufacture runs. Probably their their what they hope to be their best pure hitter, Michael Conforto, isn't even starting because of Curtis Granderson and Jay Bruce. Now look, Jay Bruce is off to a great start. He's got four home runs. Take some of it with a grain of salt. He had two last night in Philly. He had, his career numbers in Philly are ridiculous, and it's a hitter's haven anyway. To me, the guy that needs to go is Curtis Granderson. Great guy. Gave the Mets two pretty good years. First year was a disaster. The last few years have been good. Well, he had a good second half last year. I mean, again, Curtis Granderson had 30 home runs. He had 59 RBIs last year. 59. That's almost impossible to do. And again, the Mets are asking him. It's not his fault, but they're idiotically asking him to play center field. Now, the plan was for him to play center field and have Juan Lagares be his caddy and come into games, you know, seventh inning or later when the Mets had a lead for defense and play also against lefties. But he's been hurt. Now, he may be back at the beginning of next week. Shouldn't be a huge deal, his injury. But it's an oblique and you never know. And in Mets world, as we've seen, you know, a week, an injury that should keep a guy out for two weeks ends up being, you know, half the season, if not the whole season. So, you, you know, cross your fingers and hope he's going to be okay. He played in a minor league game last night, went two for three. So we'll see. But it's a flawed roster. Very much all or nothing. Look, the pitching was going to be great. And I, I neglected to mention Matt Harvey and his first start looked tremendous. Which was nice to see because, you know, he's coming off the thoracic outlet surgery. He, was, he had a horrible year last year. Largely due in part to the, the injury. Uh, but, you know, he, he didn't have a very good spring. It's funny. I remember when I was growing up, nobody paid attention to spring training, particularly the results. 
I mean, and pitchers in particular. I mean, anybody really. If guys hit a lot of home runs. Nobody. It was a yawn. If guys had you know hit two hundred in spring. Nobody cared. If pitchers got knocked around, if they were established again, if these are established guys, nobody paid attention. Now everything because. Every game is televised. You've got Major League Baseball Network. You know, you've got all these sports talk shows, all these opinion shows. So now all this stuff gets magnified and looked at under a microscope. It's ridiculous. So I didn't care if Matt Harvey was getting smacked around in spring training. There was always the velocities only throwing 93. Like, that's nothing? I understand he used to throw 97, 98, but, you know, it's not like he's throwing 85. It's not Jared Weaver who used to throw in the 90s, now literally his fastball tops out at 83. Yeah, that's a problem. But, you know, 93, 94 is not the end of the world if you can spot your fastball and you have off-speed pitches. So everybody made a big deal about his velocity was down. Meanwhile, his last spring start, it was back up to about 95, 96, and he, I think he topped out at 97 in his first game. He looked very good. He pitches tonight. We'll see how he does. But the Mets have had some injuries already. Steven Matz out for a while. Then Seth Lugo was maybe going to be their fifth starter. He got hurt. He's out for a while. Robert Gesellman, who pitched very well at the end of last year and had a good spring, didn't have a great start the other night. Again, was victimized by some some bad luck, a couple of bloops, and some not great defense behind him. But he grinded and at least kept the Mets in the game until the bullpen came in and poured gasoline on the fire. And the Mets, of course, decided not to hit. Here's the other thing. These early season games, you know, schedule makers in Major League Baseball are, are beyond idiotic. Okay? You've got an East Coast team. First of all, City Field, even when it's nice out, the night games in April, it still gets cold at night. It's super windy, and it wasn't nice at all last week. The weather was bad. It got kind of nice in the weekend. But, of course, Saturday night. Remember when Saturday games used to be day games? Now they're never day games. And if they are, they're at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They never have 1 o'clock day games anymore. They play a Saturday night game. You know, the wind's whipping around. It's 45 degrees. It feels like it's 30. Guys have ski hats on. Everyone looks miserable. I mean, the Mets look like they wanted no part of being out there. None. And they're playing the Marlins. Hey, geniuses in Major League Baseball. How about if you can have the Mets play the Marlins? You have them play them in Miami in the first week of April, you dummies. Especially now that Miami has a dome where the, the threat of a rain out, which, by the way, that doesn't happen until the end into the summer anyway with the thunderstorms, but where the weather is 75, 80 degrees and sunny. Now, and, oh, and by the way, if it does rain, they have a dome, so no, no harm, no foul there either. You don't have to worry about it. I mean, having these East Coast teams open up their seasons at home is just stupid when you've got teams that play in domes and or on the West Coast or in the South where the weather's nice. And then, of course, the Mets had to play a Sunday night game. It was a beautiful day here in New York on Sunday. Beautiful. 60, about 60, 62 degrees, sunshine, not a cloud in the sky. Would have been a perfect day for a baseball game. Nope, nope, nope. Got to play the Sunday night game against the Marlins, by the way. With their idiotic uniforms. So that's a Sunday night game. So that's fun if you're a fan. And of course, Sunday night game is 8 o'clock. But no, it's not really 8 o'clock. It's like 8, 10, 8, 11, first pitch. So you get out of there, say, 11 o'clock if you stay for the whole game. It takes you a half hour to get out of the stadium. It's 11.30. Take you, say, a half hour at best to get home, maybe an hour. Then you get home at 1 in the morning. That's pretty good. Oh, and you sit there and you freeze your butt off the whole time, too. 
It's great. Well done, Major League Baseball. Anyway, so listen, Mets are four and three. Nationals are four and three. Nationals already major bullpen issues. I mean, apparently Daniel Murphy though is you know going to hit four hundred again. I mean, he's off to another ridiculous start. But they've had major bullpen issues already. Even the games they've won, their closers giving up runs. The eighth inning guys giving up runs. They're, they're struggling already in the bullpen. We talked about that, I think, the last show. And we also talked about, look, the National League East, these teams are not, I mean, the Braves are 1-5, but their lineup is not that bad. The Phillies are not going to be as bad as they were last year. The Marlins always give the Mets problems. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a tough road to hub. Not going to be easy. But again, you know, it's amazing. I remember the days when nobody paid attention to the standings in Major League Baseball till kind of around the All-Star break, really. At least you get let the first two months of the season go by. And then maybe in June you start to look at it. Not anymore. We're getting proclamations, you know, game four. You know, I saw a guy in a post wrote an article. I know it's early, but, you know, got to wonder about the Mets. Really? You know, the Yankees are a perfect example, right? They were they went we went one and four. Looked like the world was collapsing. Now look, their stud catching their stud catcher, Gary uh, Gary Sanchez got hurt, he's gonna miss a month. That's not great for the Yankees, particularly in this year's kind of supposedly about rebuilding. You want to get a look at the young guys. But they won the next two games, they're three and four. Pineda pitched a great game in opening day, Yankee Stadium the other day. You know, the Blue Jays are one and five. You know, their guys haven't hit yet. Batista hasn't hit. They're going to score runs. I mean, look, the Diamondbacks are 6-2. and two. You know, I understand they thought they are going to be better because Granke's not going to have as bad a year. Shelby Miller's in. And they've pitched well so far. Maybe they have a pretty good lineup. You know, the Padres are 4-4. Four and four. The Padres are barely a major league franchise. They're an absolute embarrassment. They have three Rule 5 guys on their team. Rule 5 guys are guys that other teams don't protect that you can take in the Rule 5 draft that if you don't keep, you have to keep them on your roster. If you don't, you have to give them back to the other team. Maybe three or four Rule 5 guys a year make another Major League roster. And Padres have three of them. They're a joke. And the Giants off to a rough start, three and five, also have had some bullpen issues. Mark Melanson, I think, blew his first couple of save opportunities there. The Cardinals are two and five. That's probably not going to last. You can't make many determinations about teams after a week. Now, I understand. I just sat here and told you that the Mets, this is going to be, they're going to be a frustrating team to watch, but they're largely unchanged from last year. It's the same exact team for the most part. Except you got Jose Reyes in the lineup every day now, and he's off to a terrible start. He's one for twenty-four. He's never gone through a stretch like that ever in his career. And Terry Collins is already trying to ruin two guys' career out of the bullpen already. He somehow managed to overuse Fernando Salas six games into the year. Only Terry Collins could do that, and he's also fiddling around with uh, Rafael Montero and having him pitch way too much already this early in the year. Guys coming off an arm injury who's used to being a starter who's now in the bullpen, and Collins has used him four times already. And for like two innings at a time, a couple of those outings. In the last outing, he got knocked around. You wonder why. 
listen, I like everyone likes Terry. He's a good guy. Players like him. He's managed to kind of keep the ship afloat. I get it. He's a good clubhouse guy. His in-game managing leaves a lot to be desired. All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Until then, enjoy a week of sports and peace out.